Are you unable to pay for medical care? Do you need health insurance? The Corner Health Center is the place for you. The Corner offers judgment-free, high-quality health care exclusively to all who are aged 12 to 25. They provide health care regardless of insurance status or ability to pay and will assist you in obtaining health insurance. Services include, but are not limited to, physicals, vaccinations, mental health programs and counseling, sexual health and contraceptive services, OBGYN, diet and nutritional support, and LGBTQ hormone therapy. The Corner is here for you. For more information or to schedule an appointment, call 734-484-3600 or visit cornerhealth.org. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you Good afternoon. You've got living writers and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so happy to be talking with Diane Seuss via technology. Joining me today, we've got Diane's latest book, Frank, Sonnets out now with Grey Wolf Press. Diane, welcome to Living Writers. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk to you and see where we go. I am absolutely thrilled uh, <laughs> today for the to have this time with you and to this chance to talk. Diane, uh, just to fill out the picture, where because we're, we're talking via technology, where are you speaking to us from? <laughs> I'm in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, that I taught for many years at Kalamazoo College here, and uh, as as their writer in residence, uh, one kid thought that meant they actually made me live there and like <laughs> chained me to a wall and made me write. But um, no, but I um, I was in St. Louis teaching at Washington University when the pandemic hit, and so I came back to my house here in Kalamazoo to ride it out. And then are you are you still teaching remotely? So at Washington University or? I finished my semester there. I was a visiting uh, professor. And so now I'm just kind of, um, I have a Guggenheim this year. That's so, right, congratulations. Yeah, That's I know, nice. unbelievable. And it's wonderful because I can survive and um, and I'm working on on my next project. Would you mind if we talked about that later on too? Or, oh, that's or fine. Feel, yeah. Is it, okay. Okay. It's Maybe not it like will it... help me with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be that would be brilliant. That would be <laughs> Diane. Good. Before we get before we get going with a conversation, I'll I'll read the the bio. On the back of this beautiful book of yours, out oh, now cool. with Grey Wolf, <laughs> you must have it in your hand now too, I right? Do. You have it in I your do. yeah. I love even the the feel of it, the heft, the the architecture of the book. It's square, square. Yes, it's it's built like I am actually. <laughs> 
<laughs> me too. We're, we're closer to the ground. We have more, I don't yeah. know. We can, yeah, we're fierce. We can be fierce N- in that way. Not as, not as far to fall. Um, and in the middle, there's a fold out, like a centerfold. Yes. Um, yeah. And on one side is a, a piece by me. And on the other side is a, a piece by my son. Um, who's kind of central to a lot of the poems. So, and that's yeah, Dylan. I, I too love, yes, Dylan. I love the feel of the book and, um, yeah, the heft. I feel like I, I really wrote something here. And I love the cover photo, too. Who's a friend of yours? Yes, this is Mickle. Um, we, we were raised in the same small town in rural southwest michigan and uh we we had a very complex connection uh at one point he moved to san francisco and this was in the early 80s and he got sick during the aids epidemic and he died um from aids just before the cocktail was really available and um so yeah, um, it it was a real loss to uh, many people, including me. But um, he's sort of the one of the spirit guides in a lot of my work, but especially this book. Like more so than folks like Emily Dickinson, or because mm. you kindly shared a beautiful piece that you've written, "Restless Herd." Yeah with me and so I've that I feel like there's different touchstones or spirit guides or like, like Conrad Hilberry yes uh, as well but but Con, this- Con was um my first mentor he showed up in in Niles Michigan where I was raised as a poet in the schools and I lived in the township and went to an even more rural high school and he had read something I had submitted to a contest I didn't really understand. And he came to my high school to meet me. And um, we he looked at other poems and we did a reading together. And he began to send me books and got me money to go to college. So, I mean, there is no me without him. And... Yeah, I have a series of mentors and then also writers from the past like Dickinson and Keats and in this book, Frank O'Hara and others who I feel a connection with, often a a complex connection, not just not a sentimental connection. And then I have my dead, um, like Mickle, like. My dad, who died when I was seven, um, many other people who passed, and uh, they too are guides. So I never feel alone in my work. I don't think I could do it without all of those spirits coming in. Is it also feeling as if the spirit is also some some kind of energy as well with... yes. With when the, yes. within the moment of of when you're drafting to Diane is that especially yeah that, 
I was thinking about somebody asked on Twitter the other day uh, to other writers, when do you when are when you're not working on poems, what are you doing when you when you get away from poems? And I thought about that question and I thought I'm always working on poems, um, if not drafting, then uh, just thinking about it. And I don't think that was always the case. It's grown more the case um, as I've grown. Uh, and so um, they're always with me. And I guess, especially when I'm kind of cooking on the page, I feel that energy or I feel some sort of guidance. Um, the first poem in the book, in fact, uh was you know I came to it so serendipitously and Frank O'Hara kind of showed up in the poem <laughs> I was writing it in my head and I I thought I liked his work but I didn't know a whole lot about it but there he was <laughs> and so I started reading more and boy you know it ends up the title of the book is Frank yes um but he showed up. I didn't summon him. Diane, would you mind reading the first poem then? Sure. Um, yeah, and it it happened as exactly as as you'll hear it here. And I'll I'll tell your listeners none of these poems are long, so you don't need to run away. They're all fourteen lines. <laughs> <laughs> So I was I was in Washington State at a residency, and I drove to a place called Cape Disappointment, and this poem comes out of that experience. I drove all the way to Cape Disappointment, but didn't have the energy to get out of the car. Rental, blue Ford Focus. I had to stop in a semi-public place to pee on the ground just squatted there on the roadside. I don't know what's up with my bladder. I pee and then I have to pee and pee again. Instead of sightseeing, I climbed into the back seat of the car and took a nap. I'm a little like Frank O'Hara, without the handsome nose and penis in the New York school and Larry Rivers. Paid for a day pass at Cape Disappointment thinking hard about that long drop from the lighthouse to the sea. Thought about going into the ocean medical center for a checkup, but how do I explain this restless search for beauty or relief? Thank you, Diane. Yeah. Wow, those, um, <laughs> those, it's, I feel those last lines just, open into everything that's to come here yeah i think so i after i uh thought that poem and then got back to my little cabin and wrote it down and i saw oh it's 14 lines it's in 14 lines i could do sonnets um it it very much became the opening marker for this book I knew it had to be the first poem. Um, you know, that it sort of sets, it sets all the terms. It provides the DNA of the whole book. And so was this the poem that was the first 
and then the others came after because the the they emerged from the 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 DNA like within or were some of these in drafts in other shapes or forms and and then you were able to see how they were part of this this mm. that's a good question because you nailed me here um there are a couple poems in that first section that were in not in sonnet form and I messed with them and turned them into sonnets because I did think they belonged here and I had I had written them just before this poem and then the the big poem that's on the fold out in the middle of the book the, it is 14 lines but it's like real wide <laughs> because <laughs> it's a it it started as a a piece of flash nonfiction or flash memoir yes but it really seemed important to this book and so i i made it into 14 lines but unfortunately it stretched i love that <laughs> yeah me too i love it now and i love it that my press uh and my editor jeff Schatz, said yeah we can work with that um and, you know i appreciate that it's a it's a it's a curious thing to have in a book of poems. And sometimes they're, I, I imagine the presses are like, it's just great that we're getting the book of poems out. <laughs> you know, you know, in a way, I'm exactly. always grateful. I mean, I'm always grateful when there's a new book of poems in the world. So yes. hats off to them. But I loved this. Is it a fold out? And then indeed it was a fold out. And I know this sounds so, so geeky to be suddenly so excited about, but there's, it matters with how how the poem looks on the page as well because that's part oh, of what yeah. you're, you're up to with these right with the 14 yes. lines and, and I love that they span the the breadth of the page often or usually so and they're the type is even bigger um than a you my usual books of poems so because they're sonnets and because they are only 14 lines it gave the designer more space to kind of chunk the whole thing up. Um, they make the book wider, for instance, to hold those wider lines. And, you know, the, the sonnets really vary from, um, none of them are Shakespearean, traditional Shakespearean sonnets. Some have, most have some sort of gesture toward meter or rhyme, most have a couplet, most have a volta, which is kind of a turn of thought in in the mm. the guts or the belly of the sonnet. Um, but some of them if uh, are almost like little. Somebody said the other day they'd read the whole thing and it struck them like they were all little novellas. Um, yeah, so some are very much like little 14 lines of prose and storytelling. So I, I thought to sustain a book that is a kind of memoir and that is all in the same form, I really have to stretch the boundaries of what that form can do. And um, so you'll see from really um, rhymy and almost nursery rhymy sounding ones to, to poems that sound like little monologues or and then poems that sound like 
um, storytelling. There's a wide range. And I love that idea of the space to it that you were you were speaking of because then there's even space between each of these lines as well. Yes. Um, and, and I hadn't realized how much I liked that even in the reading of it until you mentioned it. And I thought, yeah, that's all part of it. Yeah. I, I tried setting them up on the page, single spacing them and it didn't look right. It, they were crammed. And so much of that is just instinct, intuition. Um, a feeling in your body. You know, I used, I used to tell my students that the, the first thing you encounter with a poem uh, is, is the body of the poem, like you encounter the body of a person. And so, um, so you encounter the look of the poem, the body, before you know the poem and, and what's in it. And that's it's like the first impression of a person when you're walking down the street. And so when I look at a Whitman poem, for instance, and you know, this huge swaggering wide line, I know something about that poem before I ever read, I celebrate and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume. Like I know the ego and the, the friendliness and the generosity of the poem just by looking at it. And so every poem, if you see a really skinny poem, um, that tells you something really compressed. Yes. Um, For me, these poems were an act of compression, even though they're wide line because they're only 14 lines. And most of my books have been more free verse than that. So um, it was in my last book, which is called Still Life with Two Dead Peacocks and a Girl, (laughs) which was (laughs) centered a lot on still life painting, um, that I first turned to something like a sonnet. Um, I did a sequence of 14 line poems that were not rhymed, all about a still life painting, and every line was 17 syllables, like mm. a haiku. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's crazy making. <laughs> <laughs> and but yet, so... you were the one that did it. <laughs> I, I did it to myself. I know. Like a lot of crazy making things. I love um, that. <laughs> but um, all of those givens, it turns out, are good for the imagination. The imagination sort of, sort of has to leap to the challenge. Whereas, you know, if you say to somebody, write a poem about nature, I mean, my God, it's just mm. so open-ended. Yeah. It freezes people. Yeah. But if you say, try something about that tree you loved when you were a kid, um, you know, a, some tree that just held your imagination, that's, that's easier. And then if you say, and write that poem um, so that the lines are no wider than an inch, um, you know, and it it has to be 15 lines, that sounds like a drag or it sounds hard. But when you have to sort of rise to the occasion with those kind of um, nettlesome givens, Mm -hmm. the imagination, 
it, it distracts the analytical mind so that the imagination can kind of spring forward. Yes, and pour, um, pour into it. Yes, yep. Yeah, so having to do, having to write in 17-syllable lines in a 14-line poem about art and and still life's intersection with my rural upbringing. Wow, that's a lot of givens. But it ended up really feeling good and working for me. And that's one reason I got hooked and decided to turn to the sonnet for this book you trusted it in a way like there was a way that your mind had been already obviously successfully working in it and then you could so you loosened it up though so it wasn't 17 syllables anymore it had, right that would be madness it, wouldn't it, it would, if you try <laughs> if you tried to do a whole book of, yeah that would probably kill me but yeah it, it it loosened up and it it you know, there's a lot of things in this book that that it can do with a line. How so, Diane? Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, um, there's there's a segment of poems in the book that take place, imaginatively speaking, in the place where I was raised. And those poems don't use... Most of them don't use punctuation. So, like, the first poem in that sequence begins... Could you read it, Diane? Sure. I like this poem, um, and I don't read it very often. The lambs, the lambs this year are dumb, but lambs are dumb. Their tiny brains, archaic smiles, humans to a lamb are all the same. All rams the same, all ewes are mom, all milk is mine, all lambs are me, all blades of grass, a single blade of grass, incapable of love, unlike a pig who aims to please, who specifies, who trots behind, as loyal as a dog, and kisses like a dog, its tongue astonishingly soft, who grieves when led away, when loaded up, when walked into the marketplace, who die of grief of held too long to get to slaughter weight. Nostalgic for the hills, the mist, the girl, the battered truck she peddled to the barn, the chickens who have no self at all, who yearn as one, who peck the flat terrain as one, who rise as one and fall as one like rain. Thank you, Diana. Yeah, so, you know, there's so much more interest in that poem than in the Frank O'Hara opening poem with sound. Um, dumb, lamb, lamb, mom, um, you know, tongue, just those sounds alone. And then the rhyming couplet at the end, all um self at all who yearns as one who pecked the flat terrain as one who rise as one and fall as one like rain mm. and so you get that sort of you know terrain and rain that perfect rhyme snap that really ends a poem and in this poem diane is there was there for the line breaks because i noticed 
that when you read it too, sometimes it's not as if it fell obviously at the the break of a line. Um, and so, was there a s- syllabic at work, or was it? Yeah, was there... I wasn't counting syllables, but I had a a metrical scheme going. The lambs this year are dumb, but lambs are dumb. The lambs this year are dumb, but lambs are dumb. It's get it's close to iambic pentameter. Yeah. They're tiny brains, archaic smiles, humans to a lamb are all the same, all rams the same, all use our mom. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that five stress, five unstressed syllables per line. And so when you are when you are composing these, when you are drafting these poems, this to me feels like these lines, you were in the sound of it, right? As you were in the making of yeah. it. Yeah. And a lot of times with a poem like that, I walk my dog every day and I'll be walking the dog and I'll think, uh, you know, the lambs this year are dumb, but lambs are dumb. Da, 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 da. You know, I'll kind of start singing it in my mind before I ever hit the page. And like that poem came up. My niece has a farm in Niles and she might write to me a text or a message and say, the lambs this year are dumb, but lambs are dumb. And I'll hear, yeah, I'll hear the music in that line and that hooks me. And then your mind plays with it more, the sound. Yeah, and and then the sound gives the gift of the meaning of the poem. So as I followed the sound, um, it led me to a place where, you know, it's not it's not sort of a um Hallmark movie farm, you know, it's a I don't know, it raises it to archetype somehow that you know, the lambs and the pigs and the chickens, there's a and the loyal um, dog. <laughs> yeah. That and that ultimate um the the ultimate tenderness of things and the connection between things, you know, the chickens who rise as one and fall as one like rain. That's a, that's a pretty transcendental moment. Um, So even though it's just pigs or just lambs or just chickens, the, my, the place where I'm from and, and those people, are kind of the core or the center that everything else spins off of. And so it makes sense that that section is the most, I guess, ear-oriented, music-oriented. It's the most sort of lyrical part of the book. And there's no I in it, uh, capital I. I'm the witness, I'm the singer, but I'm not a participant. Oh, and what does that mean to you, Diane? Um, <clears throat> well, I haven't lived there for a long time. Mm. And it's sort of like Faulkner's uh, made up but very real county that many of his novels were set in. It 
it lives in me as a space in my imagination that is just central to my aesthetics, to my um, self-image, my identity. And it's kind of the, the playground of my imagination. It From there, everything springs. I mean, that's where, when I was really young, um, you know, we didn't have toys like kids have now. We might have one or two toys, but um, most of what we had was the the gifts of the landscape. So like mm -hmm. for me, milkweed pods are really important and cattails, bogs and cemeteries and snakes, you know, mm -hmm. the things of, of the land, cows. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, whatever your first landscape was and however you interacted with it, that's just central to how you're made, how you're put together. And then if you're a writer, it's central to the language that you bring to things. And so for you also, is the St. Joseph River part <laughs> of that landscape too? And Yeah, actually I'm writing an essay about that right now. Really? Called Midwestern Essay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just about... Um, that river and its hist—it's really complicated history, um, and what it what it brought to the colonizers that brought to that place, and and the disruption and the violence, and also the commerce and the beauty, and um, now you know the pollution and the poison. Um, there's so much, that river is so much. And uh, in part that's of the Underground of, Railroad, too, right, Diane? Yes, it, the, it the was. In the river. And... Yes. Niles was part of the um, Underground Railroad. And, um, and so, like every place on the planet, like every place in the U.S., like every place in Michigan, it just, its history is really complex and and not clean and not, you know, not not simple. And the the closer I get to it, the harder it is to see uh, clearly. Um, the the thing I'm working on writing about now is set in that town, and sort of as that town exists in my imagination and real damage that was done to children there mm. um, and how to write about that in a way that isn't just oh, too invasive or too um, so dark that you can't even look at it and how it becomes how it has been woven, literally woven into the fiber of that place and how people interact with each other. The damage to the children because the children grow and are still yeah. at the place. Yeah, yeah. And there was a 
incident um, that was very, that created a great deal of division in the town um, at a daycare center. Um, and it was abuse. And um, some people didn't believe the children and oh. some people did. God. And that created this division that still exists today. And relatives of mine were children there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just, th- there's so much complexity around it that I'm just finding it very daunting to to find a way to in that isn't, that is both truthful and nuanced um, without being so devastating that you can't take it in. So that's what I'm working on. And how do you know it's an essay, Diane? Well, this isn't, so this is more a a big project. Um, Mm. And I'm calling it in my mind, Little Epic. Um, Mm. And my, one one of my spirit guides is the ancient Roman poet Catullus. Oh. And yeah. And Catullus has a, poem number 64 that is sometimes referred to as a little epic and it begins with a it it's most of it takes place as a description of this coverlet that is on the bed of a bride and on the coverlet are sewn images that then become the the text of the poem that hold the content and the story. And so I'm sort of doing the story of the town on as it is sewed into this coverlet for a bride who is one of the children. Oof. I know. <laughs> and, um, I don't know how it's going to look in the end. The first section is going to be actually in the Kenyan Review coming up here pretty soon. Okay. Yeah, but it, it's uh, it's daunting, and I, I'm still not sure what its shape will be. And it may contain some prose, some essays. I just don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know yet. And so it seems to me that then... So it's because you talked about having this, the town, the town of Niles is this, and also this has become this imagined space because you're not, not there. You're not living there, having yes. for years, right? And yeah. so then this also, this frame of the, the, the project, the little epic now, this is an imagined person because you're not, there isn't a coverlet for this person who's getting married. Right. Right. So, so all but these, there are, Oh, go oh, on. Sorry. Go, yeah. well, well, I would, well, I guess what I was trying to say was that these pieces of the imagined um, will allow you to get to, cause what we, what you were saying is just, we were talking about the darkness of it all and the right. But because yes. there's this, this, um, slight distancing because it isn't connected to the real person then it can become what it is for 
for more people. Like you can get to look at that truth closer. Maybe I'm sorry. I'm yeah. stumbling all through this. I want no. to hear your thoughts, not mine. Hey, listen, <laughs> help me, man. Help me. <laughs> I need all the help I can get. Um, no, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> I really do. Well, the spirit uh, guides are working. Project. Yeah, that's my hope. Um, okay. So, you know, every archetype, every god or goddess has, I think, a corollary in the real. And so the the character, so, yes, I am telling this is kind of an epic that is read as, you know, an ekphrastic um, art piece, as, as a, mm. you know, Catullus reads this coverlet. He, he reads and describes the images as a way of telling about the gods. And so I thought, is this a way that I can kind of read this art object? And it it does give me um, the distance to witness. But the com- complicating factor is my whole family is still there. Oh. And it, and all of this has very real consequences for all of us. Yes. Um, and so I don't want to shove that out of the way in sort of the pretense of remove. And so I think what I'm wrestling with is the speaker herself that um, I think she's going to try for for a Catullus like objectivity and and storytelling, but I don't think she can stay there. I think she gets dragged in and becomes less objective and more um, thoughtful and she muses more. It has more to do ultimately with herself and the way she thinks about the world than we see in the very beginning. So I can't stay with a sort of inertness of an art object. Ultimately, these are people that I love that have been damaged, but who also are incredibly creative in their strategies of survival. And that's what I love about small places. Not that, um, you hear my dog. Sorry about that. I love that. What's what's your dog's name? His name is Bear. Bear. And he looks like one. He's my, he's my significant other. Uh, and he's he he's protesting that description but um <laughs> let's see before i totally lose it um yeah it's not that that it's i'm not sentimentalizing or romanticizing that that people are better at survival or coming up with survival strategies there than anywhere else than in you know a city but because they're small, you can see the storylines more clearly. It, uh, 
there's there's less in the way. At least I can. Uh, and everything is there. I mean, look at Faulkner again. You know, Faulkner could write As I Lay Dying or Life in August or Absalom. And everything he needed was in the, were in the, you know, was it existed in these small places and these rural settings. So all of the big, this is the, the sort of theme or theory of what I'm working on next is that all of the big um, themes of life um, exist in every place. So every place carries the DNA of the gods and goddesses. So that's what I'm going for. That's if humans are there, this, this then DNA. it's all there. And, yeah. You know, yeah. probably one of my the things that is most important to me. Um, I just threw my dog a bone. <laughs> <laughs> well done for bear. <laughs> Oh, he's offended that he that I thought that would shut him up. Um, <laughs> you think I'm that cheap woman? He'll be um, back. He'll be back. <laughs> so uh, let's see. Where was I? Do you know? Well, would you? What we you were saying how if because people are in the small towns, the DNA of the gods are there, like wherever that humans yeah. are humaning <laughs> there will be these 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 stories and these these all these the, the tragedies and also the beauty of yes of it yes and the beauty of just the quirky ways people survive it just it it amazes me and the way people construct beauty in their own way you know, people who are poor. I, I just wrote in this essay I'm working on now about my mother, um, after she was widowed at age 32, and she had two kids, and um, her parents hadn't allowed her to go to college, so she didn't really have a great way to earn a living. Uh, and most of our money had gone to t my dad's illness he was sick for from the time he was 29 oh, and gosh. so um we didn't have the money for beauty that you buy but she would take jars and put food coloring and water so there might be a jar with red water and a jar with blue water jar with purple water and she would put them in the windows oh yeah for the light to come through yes yeah and I found them to be magical when I was a kid and I still would uh yes but you know that's the you see that that kind of inventiveness and that growing toward something beautiful in a, in small places with people without a lot of financial resources. And I just find it really moving. And I, I think you, you see that 
inventiveness everywhere probably, but I saw it there. And it's my template for, for understanding. That's why I get so annoyed nowadays um, <laughs> by people online who say, you know, oh, I can't stand it because I can't get to the salon and I can't oh. buy beauty products and I can't, oh. you know, and I can't do my, um, what do people call it where they shop for for relief, like, I can't think of the word for it, but, you know, where, oh, like, like shop, we have, shop, re oh, yeah, therapy, something like, shop, re yeah, retail therapeutic. therapy or something. Retail therapy, yes, thank you. You know, I just, you know, the, the class, um, angry class person in me just can't take that stuff. Um, Completely. And then I, I have to kind of, lay back on my judgments because everybody does you know we all do what we learn um but it's amazing how you or can... also, also though i think some people like what we've been talking about for a while or maybe this whole time diane it's like the people you have you have what you learn and what you're given and what some things sometimes what's done to you right but then yes you also have a way Sometimes you can find it yourself, sometimes with a spirit guide, or sometimes there's a other flesh and blood person that can help, you know, but you have a chance to think about or question things, right? So that it's not yes. just, we aren't just those things. We have a mind yes. and imagination and curiosity. If I had, if I had stayed there, I don't think I would have written. I don't think I would be a writer. Um, and that isn't to say that people who did stay, which is just about everybody I knew, mm. um, are any less. I'm not saying that. Um, mm. I just needed to not stay. But you know, I'm not very far. Right. I'm not very far. That's interesting, um, Diane, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I've been a lot of places. I've lived a lot of places. New York I, City. Yeah, I lived in New York and Cincinnati and Spain. I've traveled with my work um, and, and spent time all over the country. But this is, you know, this is where I need to be. This is where I need to call home. And, and close to it, but not in Niles, not, not in, in a, the yeah. same place. And I mean, this is a really complex issue, but, um, you know, it's a really different place now because of the incendiary political atmosphere of yeah. in the country and what that has done in small towns um, like like mine it you know it's just really changed the tenor in the conversation and how people talk to each other and i know i couldn't it would be very difficult for me to live with that i diane i i i understand i listening to you i i've been like in a from a small town in 
Florida, and my mom ah. is living with us now during um, since like during COVID, and and her the neighbor put up a, a sign, a, not a sign, a flagpole with a flag, F Biden, at, at, oh, and it's God. at the corner of the street and and next to where mom and, and now thankfully um you know mom called some neighbors and was like somebody needs to talk to the young man who now owns the house and <laughs> um <laughs> just and mm-hmm. and he's he's he has taken it down for at least the time being but it's true there's um and it's also this very oddly uh, a seat of this uh the bible school which is like a, a type of religion that is also in this town and and so it's very it's yeah like what you said things are things are really complicated in in america and yeah and maybe it's always been there for us in this but it's not it's out more where we can we can reckon with it now I hope. Yes, and we must reckon. We must reckon. It's just really wrong. Um, I mean, I'm. I don't have any nostalgia for the past in the place where I'm from and places like it because that there there was so much there there was a kind of ease because so much was covered up. Um, so I don't feel that I can write about those places without doing my own reckoning yeah anymore certainly now and that that just ups the ante and makes it more complicated to to sit in front of the computer and write um and to feel grounded in what i'm trying to get at i i feel like i'm i'm starting over in certain in certain ways really yeah I do I um sort of in this in the since the last four years it's it's remade me and all of us I think into a different being and that being has to figure out how to write a poem that's freaky, isn't it? <laughs> it I, that feels right, is what I was going to mm-hmm. say. That feels like that. Uh, that feels right, Diane. Yeah. It's not comfortable, that's for sure. I'm much more comfortable when I'm just grooving and writing and cooking with yeah cooking with yeah. the writing that's what you were saying yeah when i'm cooking yeah and it doesn't feel like nothing feels like that now right for yes. people you can't you can't just do a cooking walk or a cooking trip to the store uh, or yeah. be with your neighbor in any kind of uh position of of intimacy or closeness so nothing feels natural and you know the cool thing about poetry for me is that it follows you wherever you go and so the place it's followed me is through political strife and violence and uh 
a pandemic which threatens everything I know and, and love, including my own body. So you can't, you can't cordon poetry off from that. It, it has to go with you. And, and what are some of the poems looking like now, Diane? Well, um, interestingly, um, one thing that I've been doing, I, well, every time I, I started a new book, I try to do what I haven't done. So, um, the sonnets were me saying, I'm going to have, I'm going to have the super challenge of writing short because I had pretty much written in longer free verse through my other books. Yes. Um, and then now I'm so in love with the sonnet that I, I have to give it away. You can't keep doing the same thing. And so that's why I'm working on an epic. <laughs> so, you know, what's the opposite of a sonnet? In a lot of ways, a, a book-length poem. And so... Um, the stuff I've written toward Little Epic is um, wide lines and couplets, but also I've been writing about literature as it impacted me as I was a young upstart. Um, people, <laughs> people like Colette, the French writer, or yes. Um, uh, and I, I, uh, I'm working on a poem about Theodore Retke, the, oh, who's, who's this? Yeah. A Michigan, um, who, uh, our Michigan, Michigan Retke. Saginaw. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I have a big, like several page poem called modern poetry, which is about taking a modern poetry class as oh. a 18 year old. And what that looked like and what we read and how it landed for me and what it became. By the end of the poem, I've joined up with a women's literature class at, not at the college where I attended, but at the university in the same town. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as women's literature. I, I didn't know there was a, a woman poet. I was writing poems, but I, I never thought that I could join the party. Mm. And I mean, this was like in the, you know, seventies, yeah, I'm old, I'm 64. <laughs> and <laughs> that's, that's the new 44. Yeah. I keep telling myself that. Um, but this women's lit course was just a absolute eye-opener. We read Toni Morrison, we read Audre Lorde, we read um, Plath, we read Sexton. I saw, oh, I, you know, these are, these are my people in so many ways. And then one of the women in the class was um, killed by her ex who oh. was stalking her oh, and God. then what does literature become then what does it become and that's sort of where the poem ends up so i'm in could you read part oh, of that or no do we have time yes i can okay 
I know we're getting toward the end here. Yeah. I like to sort of construct myself as sort of a rube or a or a dumbbell in certain ways who has to learn everything. It was Why? what I'd been wait um because I did. And I think we all do. I, I'm more interested in being kind of the, not innocent, because I don't believe in innocence, but the, not the hero, but the person who stumbles and has to learn. Hmm, yeah, I understand that. So um, it was what, I modern poetry, it was what I'd been waiting for my whole life but I wasn't ready for poetry. I didn't have the tools. Rat key. Okay, I appreciated the greenhouse poems and decades later saw his bed, toilet, upright piano in that desolate town where he was raised. Not unlike the desolate town where I was raised. No greenhouse, but the green giant factory where mushrooms grew on couch. Wallace Stevens, I wrote a paper on loneliness in Jersey City, having no clue what he meant by the deer and the dachshund are one, and got an A anyway by faking it. So that's just the opening, and then I'll take us to the last two stanzas. So this is after the girl in Women's Lit is killed. From then on, the class became something else. Stephanie had us over to her house, a damp place in the woods. She roasted a goat and served it to us, shredded on blue plates. The books had become more and less important. We spoke of them, huddled on the floor by the fire. I remember most of all the bushel baskets of apples and grapes for winemaking drawing fruit flies. I'm not complaining. It was all more than I deserved. The goat, the greenhouse, the liberated blonde badass on her motorcycle, Sula surfacing Sunday morning, ripe plums, my education. Thank you, Diane. Yeah. Thanks so much. For this was fun today. I hope <laughs> oh, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. And what if you could see me? That's yeah. <laughs> we could see each other. You could see that um, it's been fun, but I also have some tears in my eyes. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Me too. Oh, Diane, this, I, I've loved speaking with you. Let, let's talk again. Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. If I ever finish Little Epic, we'll, oh, we'll you, have this, uh, oh, you we'll, will. we'll reconnect. Oh, you will. You will. <laughs> T today on Living Writers, Diane Seuss, Frank, Sonnets, out with Grey Wolf Press. I'm T. Hetzel. 
Until next time. Welcome into the Daily Sport Report. Zach Linfield with Stevie McGregor recording this on September 7th, 2021. will be aired on Wednesday at 6 p.m. But Stevie, first of all, this is football season. We're in the midst of the football season. 1-0 Michigan football had a great win over Western Michigan last Saturday. They play Washington this Saturday. I know you the game. How was it from a fan's perspective? Because it looked pretty electric down from field level. Yeah, um, it was it was everything that a Michigan football game should be and more. Um, it was really nice because I know my freshman year, um, I'm a junior now currently, uh, a lot of the games, especially like the smaller games, I mean, Westerns, they're not bad, but like they're a smaller game on our schedule. Um, and they were not, those games weren't really packed to the brim, but it was it was really, really cool to see um the student section like completely filled up um like the full 107 to 110 thousand strong and it was just it it was a real sight to see and it was just beautiful it was beautiful to see honestly and you'll be at the game saturday right yes i will yeah and i'm sure you know about the promotion that hopefully everyone that listens to this also knows it is the maze out so if you're listening to this just please wear a It really isn't all that hard for one game to put down your favorite blue color jersey and switch it up for one day. But that's actually not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk to you about an early season prediction preview of Michigan basketball. And Stevie, you and I are both high on this team and coming off of last year. How do you feel? What's your first thought that comes to your head when you think about Michigan 